This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. Now, Fight Back with Libby Snymer on Zoomer Radio. Good afternoon and welcome. It's Monday and that means it's time for our Zoomer Squad and we begin with more evidence about the neglect of residents in long-term care during the pandemic. And although the numbers show Canada has the worst record among high-income nations, to remind you, 81% of the coronavirus deaths through the end of May were people in nursing homes. The story is the same. The trajectory of the story is the same for other high-income Western countries. And the bottom line is that countries didn't factor nursing homes into pandemic planning. The New York Times story focuses on Belgium, where nursing home patients were not allowed into hospitals when they got sick, even though for the entire time, nearly half of the acute care beds in hospitals were free. Uh, You know, the same thing happened here. We have heard from our listeners. There were many times when A nursing home resident who fell ill was not allowed into the hospital. We've heard those stories. We also know that many alternate level of care patients, those patients stuck in hospitals while waiting for a long-term care, well, magically, they were able to get into long-term care as the hospitals were preparing to clear space for the pandemic. Um, So I'd like to read a passage from this piece, and it says, this is in quotes, of all the missteps by governments during the coronavirus pandemic, few have had such an immediate and devastating impact as the failure to protect nursing homes. Tens of thousands of older people died, casualties not only of the virus, but of more than a decade of ignored warnings that nursing homes were vulnerable. Okay, I don't know if this makes us feel better because it's not just us, even though uh, we, we apparently did it to a larger extent, or what? What do you think of this? 416-360-0740, toll-free 1-866-740-4740, especially if you have some personal experience of the ramifications of this. Now I'd like to welcome David Kravitz. Vice President of Zuber Media and Chief Marketing Officer at CARP, Bill Van Gorder, incoming Chief Policy Officer at CARP, covering for Marissa Lennox's Matt Lee and Peter Mugridge, Senior Editor of Zoomer Magazine. Hi, everyone. Hi, Libby. Good, hey, Libby. Good afternoon. Okay. Who wants to start, David, your reaction to this piece? Not surprising. Uh, interestingly, Belgium also had the highest by far even much higher than the United States, deaths per 100,000 population, like an insane, insanely high number. Uh, it's shocking. It's not surprising. And I think that, you know, it, it can't be attributed only to misjudgment. And gosh, we didn't know. Um, there were active policies to do this. Um, 
And if you want to start digging into the United States, it's scary. In New York, the highest rate, they actually were moving COVID-infected seniors back into nursing homes from hospitals. So widespread, um, you know, mismanagement. And I think if we want to get later in the show into whether it's all underlying ageism, that perhaps is the most disturbing, uh, you know, fact of all. Just nobody cared about these people. Well, I mean, with the United States still, uh, I don't know if it's just a, a function of the fact that overall Canada did better, but instead of 80% of the deaths being in nursing homes, it was half that. It was 40%. And that was the average in other countries. 40% still unacceptable, but um, not as bad as we did here. I didn't oh, see... I didn't see a percentage for Belgium. And again, I, I, if it's lower, it's probably because uh, their overall rate was higher. Bill, what do you make of this? Well, the, uh, you know, the Belgian officials uh, said that uh, denying care for the elderly was uh, never their policy. But once again, you know, ageism is rearing its ugly head. Um, the, the whole public uh, discussion around COVID-19 uh, has really been devaluating uh, older adults. Um, it's an ageist attitude that makes uh, uh, people, first of all, think that somehow the pandemic is just an older adult population problem. And CARP has talked for a long time about the need for the generations to work together to maximize the uh, support uh, and uh, and valuing older older adults. Uh, but it's still not happening, and this is just a really unfortunate example. Peter, in the um, in the article, um, one of, one of the most poignant scenes was uh, when when ambulance um, when, when EMS people brought uh, brought a COVID infected elderly person back to the nursing home. They had hazmat suits on. They had you know they disinfected their ambulance, and they left the old person in a home that had no masks, no gowns, nothing. So they, they kind of knew what was going to happen. You know, I'm not accusing them of, of saying they had alternatives, but it, it was obvious what was going to happen if, if you release these people back into, into nursing homes. And, and they just did it. They, they said good luck and left. And, and that's basically what governments around the world have been saying to the elderly. Good luck, you know. Um, again, uh, um you know, I I was very surprised when during the height of the pandemic, uh, when I first learned that they had actually moved people from hospitals into nursing homes. And I kind of took that to be uh, something on the order of an honest mistake. Uh, so, uh, again, David, was I am I being too kind? Well, I think you're I think it's partway between outright malice and an honest mistake. I don't think it's outright malice in the sense that, hey, we've got some people here who are definitely going to die, and, and we're happy about that. I don't think it's that. But I think it's an honest mistake born of indifference to that age group, which in turn relates back to ageism. And frankly, I think as a policy measure, and we can get into this, there is um, a tendency to say, uh, how many years of life do they have left? Um, if they don't die from this, they're going to die from something else. The average age of going into a nursing home in the first place is, I think, 85 or 82. So it's easy to kind of, you know, be a little less vigilant about that than with, with younger people. And I remember, Libby, weeks and weeks and weeks ago, 
we had debates on this show about uh, reports coming out saying, you know, do you give the ventilators to, to young people rather than older people? So I think underneath the surface, there's this attitude ticking away that this is not a population we need to really exert ourselves for uh, to help them. Yeah, I mean, you're you're reminding me, it was even from the head of the Canadian Medical Association, yes. who is himself a Zoomer, and uh, he walked that back. Uh, which was good news that he walked that back that, uh, that, you know, we had seen the rationing of ventilators in Italy and we're wondering if we would get to this place here. Fortunately, we did not. Also, in the interim, uh, doctors have to figure out some protocols, uh, so that they would have to resort to ventilators less because, uh, that leaves a lot of damage. That's a whole other story. But yeah, so I guess what we're left with is, uh, I think, David, uh, I think you're kind of right on there. It's some kind of strange cross between uh, willful, uh, you know, it's okay if these people die and, and some kind of oversight mistake, Bill. Yeah, uh, you know, one of the one of the, the uh, really unfortunate lines in that uh, a New York Times article we're referring to uh, called uh, the care workers at long-term care facilities uh, were prepared like firefighters in pajamas. I mean, they just weren't uh, prepared. Part of that was a lack of knowledge around uh, uh, COVID-19. But the other part was just a lack of, of planning and following uh, uh, recommendations that groups like CARP had been making for years in terms of making sure long-term care facilities were prepared for major uh, epidemics. And, and we, you know, they, they can't be excused too much because uh, for years we've been dealing with what we're now calling the regular influenza outbreaks in long-term care. We know how they spread. We know uh, what happens. We know the kind of protection that's needed, but still nothing uh, was, uh, was done. So, yes. Uh, there has been an attitude, and we see it uh, and hear it continually repeated. Well, those people were over 85. They they already had comorbidities. Uh, they were probably going to die anyway. And that is just not an acceptable approach at all. And what, what we're worried about now, of course, is that as we look into the fall, are we now, having learned all this, going to be prepared like we were not six months ago. Well, yeah, that was, uh, you, you got to my next question right away. Just a week ago, we were talking about a new staffing report on long-term care. And then we heard from the Ford government here in Ontario that, you know, we're going to get their, quote, staffing strategy later hmm. in the year. But uh, all the while, they're sort of saying, but don't worry, we're on this. Uh, so, uh, I don't know, Peter. You, you know, are these? Are well, let, let's hope the let's hope the second wave doesn't come until the staffing report is out. <laughs> well, <laughs> I mean, it, it's you know, at, at this point, if if this happens again without proper precautions, I mean, there will be absolutely no excuse. Right, and uh, you know it. It doesn't look like uh, now. Now, CARP could speak to this better than I can, but you know, we have a long-term care commission that uh, 
you know, who knows when that'll be due. We have the staffing report due at the end of the uh, at the end of the year. Like none of these reports are going to come in in time for the expected second wave. So I, I hope the government has something else up their sleeve. Well, I I mean I was surprised because they keep saying that they're on it and they're fixing things as they go, but but I, I haven't heard anything about them hiring more people. Uh, and it's also there's a, we know there's a shortage of people. And the people who've been working are pretty darn tired. So, you know, um, I don't think there's a huge pool at the moment of people well, they're to hire. Not, they're not announcing any. You see, the problem, I think, is that they're just they're not, they're either they're not doing anything or they're being very non-transparent. Because if you accept, let's accept for the sake of discussion, it's going to take a long-term solution. But you now have a short-term emergency. So I think it would be perfectly fair for the government to say, look, we can't fix this until uh, such and such a date. So in the meantime, we're going to continue to use, you know, the Army, the fire department. What is your plan if there's a, of a rebound of COVID? Knowing that we're going to give you a pass. We're going to say, okay, if it comes back in the fall, we don't expect you to have rebuilt the entire long-term care system. We don't expect you to have fixed years and years and years of neglect. But what's your plan when the house is on fire? What's your immediate emergency plan? Temporary manpower, temporary, what is it? And the answer is there's nothing. So they've either got some plans that they're not sharing with us, keeping their fingers crossed that it won't come back, or in fact they, uh, they've done the same thing as they've done all along, which is zilch. Well, I don't know. Maybe it's the Army and they're negotiating that. <laughs> uh, let's take a call from Helen in Toronto. Hi, Helen. Hi. Oh, I am uh, feeling pretty negative about the uh, fact that there isn't a warning. I was hoping that maybe the gentleman that you're interviewing, uh, Zoomer Magazine and anything related to a publication, could uh, warn people. Uh, like, I'm only almost 60, but my dad was in an old folks' home. And if I had known in advance that once you go in there, you basically can't get out. And it's um, the one gentleman you just interviewed said, you know, they go in around 82, 85 years old, but they don't come out, do they? And I think that should be like a full-page ad in the news, in your magazines. Don't gloss it up to say, oh, go to these great homes. No, don't. <laughs> I'm sorry, because you can't get your loved person out of the home. Well, uh, you know, it was difficult, but there there were a lot of people who did end up taking their loved ones out of the home. But uh, not everybody can care for a person with very complex needs. Uh, Bill, do you want to address that? Certainly, and you know, poor communication certainly is a part of the of the problem, and. Uh, and that communication really comes down to the individual facilities. And we've been concentrating a lot about talking about what government should do. But, you know, the individual homes should be doing uh, some of these things uh, right now. One of the problems we have is that the boards of directors and even the administrators of long-term care facilities don't have the kind of training that we believe that they, uh, uh, that they, they need. Often we hear that boards of, of management talk more about uh, painting the walls and uh, and doing up the gardens than they do about the quality of care within the uh, within the facility. 
And administrators are not, uh, they don't need to be trained health experts often. And I know of at least two cases where one is a former uh, facility manager and the other is a former executive uh, assistant. Now, not to demean either of those two positions, but moving those people up being the head administrator in a long-term care facility uh, doesn't make sense when you're looking at the kind of of health needs that those the residents have now. So I would put the focus on communication, not only from the government, but the, the facilities themselves have to communicate better with their residents and with their residents' families and, uh, and loved ones. Uh, David, I mean, uh, again, and I, Bill, I think uh, you hit on it, that there were some uh, residences where it was easier to take a parent out. And then we heard from some people who, who, couldn't, who couldn't make that happen. Well, I think, it's, it, I think, again, we're mixing a number of factors, and it all winds up where the patient and the family wind up on the short end. You could argue from a pure health point of view that if I enter a long-term care home and I become infected with a highly communicable uh, virus, I, I need to be segregated. I can't be allowed back out into the society, but I will be allowed back out uh, once the danger is passed. And I don't know uh, what the, if there hadn't been COVID, what are the normal procedures? Let's say you move into a long-term care home and there is no COVID, but you're not happy. Can you move out? I don't think they can. They can keep you there if you want to leave. Uh, in this case, they were able to use the reason, and it's a valid reason, that we, we can't let you out because you, you have this uh, illness. Well, but it was go, in, interesting, yeah. David. You and I talked about this, but at yeah. the end of last week, yet another report came out from uh, the Canadian Institute of Health Information, and it said that one in nine residents in long-term care could actually be cared for at home if there were proper home care supports. Correct. And the the number one reason they gave for not was they didn't know where to go. And the the navigation was was a problem. And and furthermore, we also know that when it comes to long-term care, you're on a list. You have your number one, two, three choice. And if they call and they say, okay, you can get into your, your number one choice. We'll see you in two weeks. But if you say, I'm not ready in two weeks, then you go to the bottom of the list. That's, I've known people who, uh, yes. go to long-term care early for that very reason. Exactly. They're not ready, but they dare not go back on the, but, but to the, to the caller's point about getting them in and out and to Bill's point about communication. It, none of this should come as a surprise because the entire healthcare system is not centered around, it's not the patient and we go back from there, it's the system. We'll build the system, you figure it out. We don't really need to uh, treat you the way a, a, a business would treat a customer because you don't have, we're a monopoly and we'll do it the way we're going to do it. We'll try to make it better. We're sorry if it's bad, but we really have the culture of saying, what does the patient want? What are the patient's rights? What is the, uh, how, how do we make this responsive to the needs of these people is absent from the system. So the boards of management that Bill was talking about, they reflect the same attitude as the healthcare bureaucracy, which is you're a cog in our wheel. We're not, we don't have to be responsive to you until the, the heat gets so big like now that maybe we'll, we'll, you know, we'll make a few uh, reassuring statements. 
Uh, yeah, Peter, you know, uh, what do you make of that report from the end of last week saying one in nine actually could be cared for at home? And that's what people say they want. Well, again, it all comes back to home care. And um, Bill, you can pro- you were probably around when the um, the first uh, CARP uh, home care report came out. Were you were you around? Oh, for that? I, oh yeah. yeah, oh yeah. And that was very uh, explosive at the time. And we all thought, okay, we're going to see some action. You know, this is going to get the ball rolling. And um, you know, it, it gave home care a failing grade, and and it was very well researched and very well presented. And here we are, how many years later, Bill? Like 15 years later, and nothing has exactly. happened with home care. So, um, you know, they're going to have to get moving on this. They're going to have to figure out that home care is a key element of this situation, of of this problem. And um, they're going to have to start listening to CARP, I think. Yeah, <laughs> home home care, some people are now calling it supportive uh, care, supportive living, uh, community uh, healthcare uh, availability so people can stay either in their own homes or perhaps in a family member's home and still get the level of healthcare that they need and that they can, they can access. And, you know, all the research shows that not only can that service more uh, older adults in their later years, but it's actually cheaper to deliver than the hundreds of thousands right. of dollars that it costs to uh, create each new long-term care facility bed, uh, care in care facilities that uh, we realize now are simply warehousing our seniors, and it would be much better if they want to, if they could stay uh, stay at home. And that's another area where we're hearing uh, lots of uh, nods of acceptance that it's a good idea from government, but we're hearing no actual plans. And what CARP is calling for now, of course, is action, not just plans. Well, you but see, I think it, it it that involves basically a paradigm shift of their thinking and also of the dollars, because here in Ontario, the government has committed to building, uh, what, 30,000 long-term care beds in a number of years. That means they're putting their money into bricks and mortar. And, you know, Every government says, oh, here, look, we, we just spent another whatever it would be, $3.4 billion on home care. It's not enough. It, it has to be more if you're going to make that shift and say, okay, you know what? Those, that, that, that was, I think, in, in the Kaihai report, the, uh, the one in nine translated to something like 5,000 long-term care placements across the country. So that's a lot. It is, it is a lot, and but building those uh, building those new uh, facilities, adding to them, the estimates that uh, we saw last week were uh, between two hundred and fifty and three hundred and twenty-five thousand dollars per room per facility to build in each of those uh, facilities. Think of the amount of home care that can uh, could be delivered when uh, uh, the estimates we've seen are. 200 to $250 a day uh, to deliver appropriate home care in, in local communities. Uh, to many of us, the, the numbers just seem to make such, such good sense. And it's hard to believe why uh, people aren't, uh, why government officials aren't moving more quickly on it, except that it's moving money from one silo to another. And this is always the difficulty in government because uh, people who are in charge of facilities 
don't want to see their budgets going to some other department that's responsible for home care or supportive living. Yeah, I mean, it it really is uh, quite something. Uh, Guys, we are starting to run out of time. Uh, What are you going to be looking at through this week, David? Well, I'm going to be um, looking at signs of activity, signs of life on this file, other than optics. And I wanted to circle back to something Peter said, you know, they're going to have to do this, they're going to have to do that. Uh, And I would urge our audience to think, well, maybe they're not going to have to, because if ageism is really the the silent killer here, the the, the -the under-the-surface attitude here, their perception is they're going to bob and weave to fend off the disaster and the bad headlines, but they really don't need to think this thing through all the way and make fundamental changes. They can keep putting bandages on for short-term expediency, and that's what I'm most afraid of, and that's what we're going to be vigilant about. Peter, what are you doing this week? Um, well, you know, I, I, I'm going to be following this because the um, the the government um, governments of, at all levels have made the excuse that they were caught, you know, they were caught blindsided by by COVID, and they, you know, long term care homes were hit. They didn't know, you know, the extent of the disease, what it would cause. They don't have that excuse next time around. So um, I want to see some action, like David said. I want to see some, uh, you know, just some movement on preparing for a second wave because it's going to be just as deadly in the long-term care homes. And uh, building homes like 10 years down the road isn't, isn't going to help that. So, you know, get, get behind CARP and, and get some action now. Join CARP, join the movement, you know, add your voice to CARP and, and let, let's hear some real action. Okay, and Bill, what will you be up to? We're, we're going to be looking very carefully at the short-term plans for increasing the number of staff and the quality of staff in long-term care homes, because that's been a real, uh, a real issue. We're also going to be watching with great concern the fact that uh, Manitoba and B.C. are showing dramatic increases in COVID-19 cases in the last few days. And is this an indication that the second uh, wave is... Uh, coming. So uh, uh, both of those are going to be real, a real concern for CARP in the next week. Okay. Thank you all to our Zoomer squad, Bill Van Gorder, David Kravitz, and Peter Mugridge. We'll talk to you next week, if not sooner. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. Thanks, Libby. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. Heard weekdays from noon to one. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.